Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up before that image, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at a time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had had no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks was not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. There's a songwriter who read those verses right after he walked out of the hospital room. His son had gotten a diagnosis that was going to change his life forever. That father took up pen and paper and wrote down the song that the worship team is about to sing for you, reminding himself and you and I that even in the midst of the worst fires of our lives, there is someone in that fire with us.
certainly there's a few of us that might be in the midst of a fire this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the scripture that we're about to look at. We thank you for this song and for the reminder that you are with us, even in the midst of the fire, Lord. So we pray for our church family that's gathered here and perhaps our church family that's with us online right now, that they would sense your presence with them in the midst of whatever fire it is that they're going through. I think specifically, Lord, of our, our brother and sister in Christ, Eric and Helge, and the fire that they're going through with Sweet Julia and Children's Hospital. We pray that they might sense your presence with them, even in the midst of this fiery trial that they are going through. We pray for healing for Julia. We pray for comfort and peace for Eric and Helge. Lord, we know there are others in our church that are going through um, extreme trials as well, and we lift them up to you. As we look to your scripture at this time, Lord, give us hope in the midst of our distress, Lord. Give us encouragement, we pray, so that we could go from here as lights into the darkness, Lord. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are in Daniel 3, as we've read. You've already heard the story. We've given away the tremendous ending already. Um, but what we want to do as we look at the story is answer two questions this morning. And the two questions for us are, one, what would I do or what will I do this week when I'm pressured to worship the gods of this world? What will I do? And where am I placing my confidence? Those are the two questions we want to ask ourselves from this story today. What will I do when I'm pressured to worship the gods of this world and, and where am I putting my confidence so the first question, what will I uh, do when pressured to worship the gods of this world? 
Now, in the story, as you heard it read in Daniel 3, uh, this pressure comes to worship this giant image. So the measurements are given in measurements that we don't use anymore. So it is approximately 90 feet tall. And I don't know how tall this building is, but I think that we're going to go taller than this building for 90 feet. And so it is a massive statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, made of gold. And they are called out to worship it. Now, if you were listening closely, um, one, in my uh, fleshly pride, I want you to be proud of me for reading that passage, because that's not an easy one to read, folks. Jeez. Um, but you might have noticed I repeated some words a number of times, but I did repeat the word image uh, nine times. I repeated the word Nebuchadnezzar 15 times, and I repeated the word set up nine times. So through the inspiration of God, the author of our text is trying to get a point across, and that is King Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. And let's just keep it that simple. That's all a false idol is. That's all all the false gods in the world are. It's simply a powerful person set up an image. There's nothing miraculous about it. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's just a massive image made of gold, except there's a powerful man behind it. You read through time and history, you'll see that this plays out again and again and again, even after King Nebuchadnezzar passes away. But that's all a false god is. It's just a thing that somebody sets up. They aren't real. They're false. Now, it's 2022 in America, and I'm pretty certain that there are no, and there's not going to be any massive golden statues in the public square this week or next week or in the years to come in the foreseeable future as I see it. So one could argue, yeah, that's not the reality we live in. We live in a secularized country. We are less religious than we used to be. We are growing less and less religious with each passing year. And so this story is not really the same for us because we don't have this pressure to worship gods in our culture today. So let's just pause there and, and challenge that notion if it's a notion that's in your mind. An author named David Zoll wrote a book called Seculosity, and he has a great line, and he says, Religious impulses are easier to rebrand than to extinguish. So the premise of his book is, okay, we have this religious culture that we have inherited here. You know what's a lot easier than just extinguishing religious impulses? It's just rebranding them. And so he makes the case in his book, okay, so we've stopped going to church, we've stopped doing religious activities, but we haven't become less religious because he would make the argument, no, it's just that career, parenting, technology, politics, food, romance, they're just the new religions of the day. And we give our time and our resources to them, and we metaphorically bow down to them. And so if you think about it that way, he would make the case that so now we worship at the altar of our careers instead of at the altar of church on Sunday. We sacrifice our time and our energies and our talents, and we just bow down to our careers. This has to be advanced. This is the most important thing for me. He makes the case in another chapter, though. It could be not your career. It could be your children. It could be that your children are what you worship, and, and you run them from sports practice to music practice to play days to school things, and you just are like head spinning with all the things you're doing on behalf of your children. And you and I both would say, I don't worship my children. I don't bow down to them. But I'll just use a quick turn of expression. We may not bow down to them, but we certainly bend over backwards for them. And so it's something to keep an eye on, one of the gods of this world. Another one could be technology. There may not be a golden statue out in the public square, but there are just countless screens in the public square, aren't there? There's countless screens everywhere we look. 
And one might look at our society today when the, when the alien spaceship comes down and they might do some observations and be like, oh, I know the God of this world. It looks like a screen and it dictates all that they do and all that they value and all that they celebrate and curse. We, the, so you could just keep going. And the, the softball is politics. It is very easy to take politics and put it next to religion and be like, oh, I see what's happened here. We have taken all of our religious zeal and we have transferred it into the realm of politics and now we evangelize for political parties and political candidates and, and we sacrifice and we, and we petition and we get involved and we're so active for politics. You look at our zeal for politics, compare it to our zeal for religion and that's, that's the easiest one to, to see the example of. So there's no 90-foot image out there for us to bow down to but I would argue that there are nevertheless gods that we are being pressured to bow down to. So what does the pressure look like? What did the pressure look like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So the pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced was pressure from authority. That's why in verses 1 through 6, or verses 1 through 7, six times it says, King Nebuchadnezzar. The pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced is from the top down. And you and I can experience similar pressures to bow down to the gods of this world. And maybe you've been in a situation where your boss or some authority figure in your life has pressured you to do something that you know is wrong. And I, we probably all have anecdotes or stories that we could talk about to that end. And, and it's, it's this crippling pressure when it happens. Some of the stereotypical ones might be, you know, that pressure. No, no, you need to stay at the office. Oh, but my kid has a, a play. Well, you have to work. You have to be here. Or, or maybe it's, you know, you spot something that's wrong and, and the supervisor says, no, 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 you're going to look the other way on that one. Or you're supposed to go along with an unethical decision or you're supposed to not rock the boat and not ripple any of the waters here because you just need to walk along and that authority comes down from our supervisors. Maybe it's not a boss. Maybe it's a professor or a teacher. But pressure can come from the top down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced that. Pressure also comes from the crowd, though, doesn't it? I mean, in verse 7, it says, All the people, all the people, nations and languages, fell down and worshiped the golden image. All of them. So have you ever been in a situation, as you think back, and you're like, everybody was doing it. I mean, everybody was doing it. And, and then you had this pressure to also do it, to also go along with the crowd. We call this peer pressure, don't we? And it's one of the gods of this world. It's one of the things that we bow down to is we want to be accepted. We want to fit in. Now, each of us is, is different in our desire to fit in, but it is common to every human experience, a desire to fit in and not stand out from the crowd. And so with this peer pressure that's built into us, we oftentimes when we read stories like this or we talk about peer pressure, we just assume like, oh, okay, we're talking about kids. This is a message for teenagers and young adults. And it and it certainly is. I mean, you can read some of the statistics. It says 90% of teens admit to being influenced or pressured by their peers. And nearly 75% will admit that giving into that peer pressure boosts their social standing. It could be anything from dangerous driving to sexting to smoking and drinking and drugs and all of those things that we think about in those teen and young adult years. And it is an important message for us to get across to the young people because I do think that they are experiencing peer pressure in ways beyond what most of us in the room experienced. 
because social media and technology and our screens are like gasoline on the fire of peer pressure. And our young people do experience it in some intense ways, and they need to be reminded of stories like this. But I, but I actually will applaud the teenagers and young adults of our world today for being self-aware of it. Where I start to get concerned is people beyond their teen and young adult years, people like myself, sometimes we can become less self-aware to how much peer pressure is affecting us. So you get to my stage in life, and I'm like, I don't really experience peer pressure anymore, you know. Like, I'm, I know what it's like to go to my neighborhood block party. I know how to handle the alcohol and the smoking. Like, I've got that. Like, I don't feel that pressure like I did in high school when I went to those parties. So I'm beyond being affected by peer pressure. I just think we're just not as self-aware as our teen and young adult friends are. Because why don't I talk about topics of faith with my secular friends? Oftentimes because I want them to like me and I want to fit in and I don't want to look like some kind of like religious nutbag, right? Why don't I invite more people to church? Well, I don't, you know, they have their own pattern. I don't want to, you know, come up too strong. I don't want to like, you know, step on anybody's toes. I, there's this deep-rooted thing in us, and maybe call it by different names and maybe motivations are complex, but in there, in that cocktail of motivations is some peer pressure, and I want to be liked, and I want to fit in. It pops up on all these hot topics in our culture, right? Why don't I advocate for that unborn life? Well, if I'm being totally transparent, I really kind of want to fit in. Why don't I speak up and advocate on topics that relate to human sexuality in different ways? Well, I just kind of want to fit in, and I kind of know the narrative that fits in, and so I might not just open my mouth. You see, the teenagers are at least willing to admit it. They're at least willing to admit that peer pressure is affecting how they make decisions, and they're admitting that whenever I yield to the peer pressure, I rise in the social status. It's the rest of us who maybe need to become a little more self-aware how much peer pressure is affecting us and how much the crowd is influencing what we say, what we don't say, and what positions we hold. So it's some lesson for all of us, not just the teenagers. Pressure from the crowd, pressure from authority, and then pressure from people who dislike you. So in verse 8, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And so we can get pressure to bow down to the gods through just, quite frankly, bullies, right? People don't like you, and then they go after you, and they try to smear your name and, and get you in trouble. This happens. I mean, have you ever been, well, I'm not, don't raise your hand, but if you have ever been maliciously accused, it hurts, and there's a motivation in there for you to just get in line to, re to rectify the malicious accusation that has been given against you. It's in times like those we should remember the words of Jesus, our Savior. He said in John 15, 18, listen, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. Jesus was maliciously accused, wasn't he? There wasn't any truth in their accusations. And it led him to the cross. So pressure comes from the top down, it comes from the crowd, it comes from malicious accusations, bullies, people who want to make your life miserable, and then finally pressure can come from intimidation. And so those bullies, they get Dan, not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13, and the king is furious, and in verse 15, he gives them one last chance, bow down or die, and that's whenever the, really the temperature in the room gets turned up, doesn't it? It gets turned up seven times 
hotter than it was before because there they stand in the presence of the king and here's the intimidation factor. There's the furnace and here am I, one last chance, bow down. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm in that scenario, that level of intimidation, that level of pressure from authority and the crowd and the, and the accusations, I might be start thinking things like this. Oh, I mean, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. So I could bow down in the outward appearance, but in my heart, I'm standing up. I might begin thinking like this. I've heard this said by a lot of people. Well, the end justifies the means. Sometimes we have to do things we don't like so that we don't lose our godly influence in society. So we've got this godly influence in this secular empire, and if we give up our godly influence in the midst of this uh, authority of this secular empire, well then, how can God do any work? We can't let ourselves lose this power within the empire because then there's no godly influence. And so we might have to do something we don't want to do that might be wrong so that we don't lose this godly influence in the midst of a secular empire. Sounds familiar to me. But that's not what they do. They don't say, well, the end justifies the means. Thankfully, these three men don't give in to this peer pressure of intimidation, nor the peer pressure of accusation, nor the pressure of crowds or the authorities. And their response to the king is in verse 18, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us uh, out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Can you hear the confidence in their voice? I mean, they are confident. They know their God. They're, they know where they're placing their confidence. Where am I placing my confidence? Now, if we look at the confidence of these three men, you can see it in two ways. One, you can see they're confident that God is able So in verse 17, he is able to deliver us. They have confidence in that. God speaks the world into existence. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. God is able. But in verse 18, if you notice, they also have confidence that he is free to do as he wills. Because they say in verse 18, but if not, if not, nevertheless, we will not bow down to your gods. So they have this beautiful confidence in God's ability as well as in God's freedom to exercise his will. They surrender to him and say, he knows better than we do. He has the sovereign position as king of the universe above and beyond all time, and we submit to whatever he does. But he's able, and if he is willing, then we will be spared. And we know how the story ends, and before we get to the end of the story, I do just want to pause and highlight something. And that is, as wonderful as the story ends, and we're going to celebrate it in just a moment, we should admit the fact that the majority of the time, God does not spare the faithful believer from the fire. So what you're going to see on the screens here are the names of Christians who were burned in the fire in England from 1555 to 1558. So in England, in just those four years... All the names of these people were taken out into a public square. Their hands were tied, and they were attached to a stake. 
and the fires burned them until they died. And so God is able to save, but in his will, he doesn't always save us from the fire. The Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us many of their stories. I'll share some of them with you. John Bland, John Frankish, Nicholas Shetterden, Humphrey Middleton, they were all burned together at the stake. And it says, they resigned themselves with Christian fortitude, fervently praying that God would receive them into his heavenly kingdom. Roland Taylor's last words to his wife and children were these. Now, you just, I just can't imagine the, the faith of this man and others like him. Interestingly, they call this the Dark Ages, and there's nothing dark about Roland Taylor's last words to his wife and children. He says, I say to my wife and to my children... The Lord gave you unto me, and the Lord hath taken me from you, and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe that they are blessed which die in the Lord. God careth for sparrows and for the hairs of our heads. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than is any father or husband. Trust ye therefore in him. By the means of our dear Savior, Christ's merits, believe, love, fear, and obey him. Pray to him, for he hath promised to help. And count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. I go before and you shall follow after to our long home. John Bertrand sang Psalm 25 as he was tied up and burned at the stake. And those, that psalm starts with these words, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, for you I, I trust. Thomas Bilney recited Psalm 54 O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The psalm ends, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked on triumph on my enemies. Dr. Taylor sang Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. William Hunter recited Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The challenge we have before us is to have confidence in the ability of God to miraculously save, but also the confidence in God and surrendering to the fact that he is able to save and yet he will exercise his will as he sees fit. And many go through the fires and die in the fires. But either way, we have faith and confidence in our God. We'll let the names run out as we shift and think, so that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's confidence. It's placed in God. Let's look for a second at King Nebuchadnezzar's confidence. King Nebuchadnezzar's confidence is in himself. He's like the most extreme example of what self-confidence looks like. A 90-foot statue. A lot of people think it's a statue of himself. We don't know that to be true, but he says in verse 15, Who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? And so we ask ourselves the question, How many times do I fool myself into believing that I am more powerful than God? How many times do I take charge and push God off the throne? How many times do I convince myself I am in control? How many times do I convince myself that I'm too busy to pray? Look what I know. Look what I have done. 
Where am I placing my confidence? Am I placing my confidence in my bank account? Am I placing my confidence in my health? Am I placing my confidence in my social status? Or maybe my status symbols like my car and my house and my clothing and my looks? But what happens whenever the recession hits and your bank account tanks? What happens when your health goes down? What happens when you lose your social standing or you lose one of your status symbols, right? Where is your confidence being placed? Is it in those things or is it in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? One of my favorite tracks, one of my favorite little Christian booklets frames it up in a simple way. It says there are only two ways to live. You can either live God's way or you can live your way. You can either live the way of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that is a picture of just extraordinary faith. Or you can live in the past that is King Nebuchadnezzar, which is an illustration of extraordinary confidence in oneself. There's really just two ways to live, though. Where am I placing my confidence, in myself or in God? So let's finish the story, though, and let's celebrate our God who does deliver us. Our story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ends with a radical miracle of deliverance. In verse 19, King Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He orders the furnace heated seven times its heat. They're cast in, and they're fully clothed. The men who cast the men die from the heat. Then King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, and what? He sees four men and not three. Didn't we throw three men in? Yes, O king. But I see four. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the fire. They come out of the fire. And what? The fire in verse 27 had no power over their bodies. The hair of their heads weren't singed. Their cloaks weren't harmed. And there's no smell of fire on them. If you're reading the text closely, you'll notice that uh, the only thing that the fire burned was the three mighty men and the cords that bound their hands. The fire burned the cords, but not the hairs on their hands. And then King Nebuchadnezzar praises God in verses 28 to 30. And the story ends with, again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being promoted within the kingdom of Babylon. It's the third time in three chapters that their faith in God in the midst of a fire has elevated them in standing within the Babylonian empire. So we do serve an unstoppable God who can do amazing things that shatter any of our imaginations. As we close, though, we want to talk about the fourth man. And we want to remember Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross in communion. If you didn't grab a, a cup, they were in the foyer. You're welcome to get one now. Um, but that's how we want to close out our time, is reminding ourselves that there was another man in the fire who looked as if he was a son of the gods. And so let's remind ourselves that God is with us. Jesus came and was born as a baby in Bethlehem those 2,000 years ago to illustrate for us that he is with us. Isaiah 43, 2, which interestingly was written before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fires. And it says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Matthew 28, 20, the final words of Jesus before he goes up to heaven. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, watched Jesus crucified and raised again, goes out and tells everybody he knows about Jesus and writes the book of 1 Peter. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. 
Romans 8, 38 to 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there certainly is another with us in the fire. Now, if you're reading the text very closely, you'll notice one thing that's interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar sees the fourth man in the fire. That's all we know. So the debate is out there. Who else could see the fourth man? Could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see the fourth man? The storyteller chose not to tell us that detail. So maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could see the fourth man. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they could sense his presence with them. And maybe they couldn't. And maybe when you're in the midst of your trial, maybe you'll sense Jesus' presence with you. But maybe you won't. Maybe you'll hear his voice, but maybe you won't. Maybe you'll see him, maybe you won't. Maybe, but what we know for certain is that he's with you. Because the promise of God is that he is with you in the midst of your fiery trial. No matter what you feel, no matter what you sense, no matter what you can see, he is with you.